Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Steve Bassett back to the show to talk about his latest book, Payback, Tales of Love, Hate, and Revenge. It's a noir thriller that defines urban corruption with adultery, murder, a revenge-driven madman, rogue cops and politicians, and a church on the take. For a little background information, Steve Bassett was born and raised and educated in New Jersey, and although far removed during a career as a multiple award-winning journalist, he has always been proud of the sobriquet Jersey guy. Steve has written for several publications, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning Salt Lake Tribune. He's also worked for the Associated Press, where his exposés gained national recognition and CBS Television News in Los Angeles, earning three Emmy Awards for his investigative documentaries. Steve's book, Golden Ghetto, How the Americans and French Fell In and Out of Love During the Cold War, was published in 2013. Father Divine's Bikes, book one in his Passaic River trilogy, was published in 2018. Payback, Tales of Love, Hate, and Revenge, is the second novel in the trilogy, continuing the historical noir crime drama surrounding Newark, New Jersey, in the post-World War II era. For more information about Steve and his work, visit his website at stevebassettworld.com. Well, hi, Steve. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Uh, Thank you, Sherry. So tell us, what is your new book all about? Well, I chose the title Payback because that's what is occurring uh, in the book. There are three characters in the book that were part of the American Liberation uh, Force that liberated Dachau concentration camp. It was a death camp. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had the gas chambers and whatnot. And as a result of that, uh, with a brilliant but insanely uh, revenge-filled look at life as a result of what he saw, they decide that people in the United States who were part of the um, the pro-Hitler, pro-German population before the war that supported Hitler, uh, they had to be paid back too. Mm-hmm. So they go on a revenge-filled journey, and that's how they describe it, journey, to make sure that these people, uh, and if they pick out three people that they were going to, to take out their revenge and they go after him because, in their mind's eye, if they had not supported Hitler before the outbreak of the war, and this probably would not have happened. Now, this is how they're thinking. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I touch very strongly on the German-American Bund. And a lot of people forget that the German-American Bund was really, really powerful. For instance, a rally at Madison Square Garden drew over 18,000 people. They had marches in one city after another with armbands with swastikas on them. And also throughout the country, but mainly in the eastern part because of the ethnic background of the white population in the eastern states, they had German Bund camps, almost always in pastoral country areas, where they started to indoctrinate German-American youth Mm. with fascist ideas. Now, when were they most popular? Like during the war? Okay. Oh, before. Okay. Before the war. In fact, they tried to join hands 
they were so racist that at one point in New Jersey, where they had over 60,000 members, mm. they tried to join hands with the uh, Ku Klux Klan at one particular rally. That hit the press, and it never did get the legs that the Bund wanted. But during the 30s, their recruitment was from coast to coast. Mm. I'm surprised that, because I was going to ask you about their involvement with the KKK. It sounds like, a, I mean, it's a like, a like organization. That would have been something if the two had gotten more footing. Yeah. Uh, yes, and this is especially, the setting for the book is Newark, New Jersey. And New Jersey, in a general sense, but Newark as the primary locale. There was a very large German-American population mm. in New Jersey. And where they came uh, to loggerheads with the public in general, but with the Jews in particular, was in Newark. Mm. The Bund started boycotting Jewish-owned commercial establishments, sometimes breaking windows, uh, stink-bombing them, and it led to violence. It led to violence. And there was a group which didn't gain very much notoriety, although they were all heroes uh, among the Jewish population in Newark, was a group that called themselves the Minutemen. Mm-hmm. To counteract what the German Bund was doing, closing down stores, threatening uh, Jews in the street, and, and all of the violence that went with that, the Minutemen, which were composed, and a lot of people don't realize this either, that during the 30s, uh, uh, professional boxing uh, had more Jewish top headline fighters than uh, probably any other uh, ethnic group or national nationality group, with the possible exception of the Italian and uh, coming up also uh, African Americans. Really? So huh. the Minutemen in Newark were composed chiefly of Jewish boxers, the financing for them, because they had to have money to put their program to counterbalance what the Bund was doing, was a notorious Jewish mobster by the name of Long East Wellman. Hmm. And he was the big finance man for the Minutemen. And Swillman uh, was one of the mob overlords in Newark, along with another one who is mentioned in a book, Richie the Boot Boyardo. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's really, in many ways, a magnificent landscape for a novel. You have mobsters, you have Jewish boxers, you have German-American bund out to uh, destroy Jews in Newark, you have uh, redlining, and you have a madman loose in Newark with his recruits hunting down bund members to kill them for payback for supporting uh, Hitler and fascism. Yeah, yeah. Now, you just touched on a part of your story that's making headlines today. What's going on? Uh, Well, I've been uh, spending a lot of time following up on what has become national news over the past uh, several days, a series of articles by Newsday, the leading newspaper in Long Island in New York, about redlining how what a big problem, enormous problem it has become in districting urban areas and sometimes even suburban areas as to what are desirable places to live and undesirable 
and realtors have gotten involved in the process, which means they're excluding uh, African Americans and other people of color from vast areas of our cities, big and small. And this is one of the points that I bring out very, very strongly in payback, that the problems that is, have is really reared its ugly head uh, today is not something that happened in a vacuum. It's been with us for like 70 years, and it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. And so the realtors, in essence, they're not showing certain properties to certain people? Is that what's happening? That's that's right. And uh, a lot of uh, white families who are homeowners are telling realtors, I'm putting my home up for sale, but I don't want you to offer it to any uh, prospective uh, uh, black buyers. That's wow. how far it's gotten. Now, you have a character in payback going through that same thing, Um a little over 70 years ago. Tell us, yes, tell right. us a this little is, bit about uh, that. Yeah. This is a, an African-American sergeant, uh, served with the Army in Italy, was wounded, got the Purple Heart, and he came back, with, and he has a wife and two kids, and he was looking for a rental property, not even to buy it, but just a better place to live. He was living in a slum section of uh, Newark, mm-hmm. wanted to get out, had a good-paying job and a basically a good education, and they slammed the door in his face at various rental agencies. These are rental agencies and realtors who handle property not only for slumlords but for homeowners and apartment owners in the better sections of town, and, of course, it led to violence. So I wanted to make that point that in 1946, the euphoria... Uh, the entire nation was still rejoicing to a certain extent about our victory in World War II. The realities of what was happening in a country were beginning to sink in. And this is one of the real grim realities. Mm-hmm. So so people kind of just looked past it or, or turned a blind eye, rather? Oh, yes. Well, uh, and another factor that was very important uh, brought out in the book is that people were starting to ask, why did... Why did we fight the war? I mean, what, what, if things weren't improving at home after uh, this catastrophic war uh, that affected the entire world, uh, why did we fight it if things weren't improving? And, of course, the uh, African Americans and people of color and minority groups, uh, including Orientals, uh, were asking that question. Oh, and uh, we know what happened to the Japanese during the war, and they were having a hard time after the war uh, getting their properties back. So this is touched on in a book where even the newspapers are saying that we're treating second, what we have always considered second-class citizen exactly the same way, while at the same time Nazi and uh, Nazi-leaning scientists in Germany are treated like Hollywood stars when they come over here because they're bringing secret formulas and also expertise to help build our military uh, complex. And so even newspapers were asking the question, starting in 1946, as to, again, why did we fight this war? Yeah, what's going on? Things are getting worse, not better, huh? Yeah. Right. Now, this has been going on at least since the 1940s. So why do you think it's popping up in the news again? Or did it ever really go away? 
Well, yeah, it, it's been going on, and, and we have become uh, so rigidly segregated. There are cities that have red line districts where the only people that you will find, the only citizens that you will find there will be people of color. And the stores, uh, of course, and uh, the big chains, uh, supermarket chains, uh, druggists, etc., who work on uh, very small margins. And they have pulled out of a lot of these red line districts because of, A, the perceived crime that is there, uh, rightly or wrongly, that's the perception. Uh, when I was a newsman in Los Angeles, after the Watts riots, uh, one factor that they thought had to be addressed because of the riots was that there had to be one major area addressed, which was that the people who lived in these segregated areas didn't have access to shops, transportation, supermarkets, drugstores that whites in other sections of, of the city did. I'm thinking of a drugstore chain, basically California at that time. Uh, they opened up a drugstore on a street that was right in a, a pivotal area of the watch riots. And uh, after several years, they closed it down uh, for various reasons. Mm. Uh, and they pulled out. A supermarket did the same thing. And they were all saying the margins of profit are so low here that there's no sense for us staying. Well, well. Now, how soon after you published your first book did you begin writing Payback? Well, basically, there was very little, if any, separation. While I was doing the research for Father Divine's Bikes, which is the first book of the trilogy, there were so many good points that could not be ignored or missed, but they didn't have a place in Father Divine. So I had copious notes. I had page after page of notes of the ideas that cropped up while I was plotting and putting together the characters for Father Divine that I said, this is my second book with the notes. So simultaneously with the writing of Father Divine's Bike, which was very well received, it won three awards, I was already well into my research, my plot, and the building and creating of characters for Payback. So they just meshed so closely. Yeah. Not a lot of the characters were the same, though. You, there were a few re recurring characters, but you had some new ones um, enter into the plot as well. Yes. Four major characters make the transition. Four, and I guess to a certain extent, five of the characters from the first book make the migration into the second book and are developed a lot more thoroughly, a lot more backstory. As I've said to you before, uh, the trilogy is all based on character time and place. Mm -hmm. You had to have the believable characters, put them in a, a, almost like a time warp, and then in a place where all three of these elements mesh uh, logically. So there are uh, four, and as I said, maybe even five you consider uh, major characters from the first book that do make the transition to the second as well. Mm -hmm. So playing off the title a little bit, uh, Payback, Tales of Love, Hate, and Revenge, uh, we've heard a bit about the revenge angle of the story. Uh, what about love and hate? How did those emotions play out in your story? Oh, yeah. Well, there are two 
particular love stories. And, well, three, when you take into consideration that one of the love stories is an adulterous relationship between two of the main characters. And there is another love story that is a an offshoot of that one. And there is another that involves, and again, I can't go into too much detail because it involves a six-year-old girl who was orphaned after her mother gave her up, uh, basically sold her in, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to uh, uh, put it in very harsh terms, after the husband, who was a, a fighter pilot, was killed in action over North Africa. The mother felt she could not give this kid the benefits that a uh, very bright little girl the benefits that she deserved. So we trace the transition of this very beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed girl from orphanage to a near adoption to right to the end of the book. So she is a recurring glue that holds a lot of the plot lines together. Mm. But that becomes a love story. Okay. Well, As far as hate is concerned, the hate is implicit in the revenge. Those two go together, the hate and the revenge, uh, they're inseparable. And at various levels of society, too, not just with this mad, destructive doctor who was, uh, wasn't a doctor, of course, who was going to get his pound of flesh. And so it wasn't just on that level, but it was also uh, the African-American and how he reacted to being lied to, bold-faced lies by realtors who said, we don't have... Uh, anything available for you, where he was basically sucked into this whole redlining system and the hatred that that engendered with him. Yeah. So there's very little differentiation at times between love and hate and how quickly they can change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so many different aspects of your plot parallel with current events. Can you talk about some of those parallels in addition to the redlining that's going on? One thing that I think would be of interest to our readers, there is an examination of a rogue operation that involves several strata of the power structure in Newark. And this rogue operation is thwarted in a totally unexpected way, which, of course, that's part of the plot that develops as the book goes along. And when I say that there were various elements, how easy it is for government agencies, officials, uh, to turn rogue. Mm. Now, by rogue, you could use that as a definition for any negative concept you have of officials. That would be government officials anywhere from local to county to city to national. And that, that is very much in the news today. For instance, we have a mayor in Baltimore who is facing several indictments because she turned uh, the city treasury into her own little private pocketbook. And then you had a member of Trump's White House resigned under pressure because he was using taxpayers' funds for junkets for him and his wife to travel all over the world. So the corruption that I point out in the book, um, in many cases has gotten worse because of how far it reaches today. And although this is a perspective that I believe has more than just a little bit of validity, is that all you have to do is say that you're sorry, regardless of how you might have gutted the Treasury 
and absconded with public funds. Just say you're sorry. I'm really a good man. I'm just. I'm really. Or as, as President Nixon said, I'm not a crook. You know? Yeah. Right. Uh, so that is touched upon because I'm often asked how the shortcomings, uh, the societal shortcomings that we have, how are they corrected if they can be corrected at all? I, I say, and I've always said this, that it has to start with a keen realization by the people at the top, understand and are willing to face the problems uh, that are confronting the people on the bottom. And that's not happening anymore. Yeah. We, uh, we have sadly become a, a country where we're numbed to mass killings. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's, it's incredible. Life just goes on. Yeah. So tell us about your publishing experience. My first two books were by traditional publishers. They were nonfiction. Mm. One of them was called The Battered Rich, which is marital abuse among the affluent in our society. Mm. And the second one was called Golden Ghetto, where I traced the history of what was at one time the largest U.S. Air Force base in Europe during the Cold War. And that's based all on first-person interviews with both the French and the Americans. So they were both traditional. The reason I went to self-publish is I didn't know whether I could write fiction or not. And I said, what, what the hell, I'll give it a shot. So with Father Divine's bike, I wanted to get the book out there to see what the reaction would be and how it was received. And I was really gassed by the fact that I won the three awards. Yeah, yeah. So you, you had this idea for fiction, but you didn't know if you could write fiction. But turns out you know how to write fiction very well. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, well, I, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Now, I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but because uh, you're, you're going to be busy with payback for a while. Um, but do you have a, a timeline for finishing your trilogy? Yeah, I, it's a very loose timeline. Mm-hmm. But right now I'm looking for 2021. There are going to be uh, several recurring characters in this. The setting is uh, 1947. So the trilogy takes us from 45, 46 into 47. Mm-hmm. And this will have, as the, the main characters are going to be women. And uh, it is, uh, everyone looks at the the 1960s into the early and mid-70s as seminal years for uh, women's lib. Uh, I feel, quite frankly, that the Second World War was when the first big step towards women's lib occurred. And both the good and bad end of our social structure are embodied in female characters. And it's um, uh, kind of muscular uh, feminism. Yeah, I love that. So that's about, uh, at this point, I have the characters. uh, There will be several in transition once again from book two to book three. The setting will be the same. It'll be Newark. And chronologically, it'll be one year later. I hope it it turns out and it's accepted as a logical third book of the trilogy because I want the books to embody a narrative flow from one to two to three mm-hmm. where in each of them different aspects of what is happening in society are confronted and dealt with. Yeah. And so book three will be dealing with an entirely different issue in an entirely different way. And again, it's going to be uh, character, time, and place. Right, right. It's your secret recipe. 
not so secret anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So now, the last time we talked, you mentioned a little bit about your home. You and your wife have a home in France, and you spend your summers there, but we didn't really talk about uh, the French culture. I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about the differences between our culture and, and France's culture, and how do they, what do they have to say about what's going on in the United States today? Well, the culture uh, of the two countries is so similar in many respects and so different in others. Uh, similar in that France is a first world country, as we are, and has industry, but basically it's an agricultural country. It, with the exception of three or four cities, agriculture is a driving force. And we were very fortunate uh, at a time when the exchange rate was very favorable for the American dollar. So we bought a home, uh, which, by the way, is uh, it dates back 600 years. It's a 600-year-old home. It's called La Cure, and it uh, was the home of the curate for the Huguenot Protestant village. Uh, so we're living in what was once the house that belonged to the Huguenot priest. Wow. <laughs> and it's a very provincial area. It's off the tourist beaten track. So the people we know are not Parisians or Marseillais. These are provincial people who live off the land, basically. Mm -hmm. There is some industry, and their outlook towards the United States is it's enormous, too powerful in many respects. Mm. And uh, it's very hard to find a Frenchman who is neutral or, or stands in the middle. They either like Americans or the United States, or they have a deeply ingrained dislike for the country that dates back generations, uh -huh. which can't be dispelled. And, for instance, what's happening in the United States now with Trump, they find it unbelievable. Nobody yeah. believed that he was going to get reelected. And, and this is both people on the left, the right, and the middle. And we know people, after 20 years, in each of these political and philosophical areas, they just found it astounding. Because they remember the old-timers, the real old-timers, remember when Jackie Kennedy and JFK made their tour of France and the entire population fell in love with them. Right. You know, the glamour, the beauty, and whatnot. And now, you know, the, what has happened since then, they, they take it very personally. Huh. <laughs> Believe it or not, they take their politics very personally. <laughs> There's a very strong right wing in France. They... You know, uh, with the election that's coming up, uh, we'll have gained enough seats where there will probably have to be a coalition government next year. That's what most people are saying now. Huh. Uh, Le Pen is the name of the family. It's second, third generation political family. Hmm. Uh, uh, the one thing that is immensely different is the enormous love that you see between parents and kids. Mm. Uh, it, the family structure uh, on the basic level is so different than it is in the United States. They're not worrying about getting them into the best schools. Of course, they want them to go to the best schools. But that and college athletics are almost non-existent when compared to what you see in the United States. Mm -hmm. Consequently, when they build their Olympic team and their, uh, their national team, it, it all comes from organizations on a local level mm. that is a big difference yeah. i mean we are we are a sports crazed nation they love 
soccer, they football, of course, in Europe, and rugby. So that is one big difference. Yeah. Uh, we are a bread and circus country. You know, we love our circuses, and we have to have them a year-round. Uh, and uh, it's not the same in France, nor in the, most of Europe. Yeah, I love hearing about different cultures, and especially what other countries think about the United States. So what they get is what they get in the media, especially the television programming, the series, the movies, yeah. and also music. American music is very, very popular, and it really is a real blast to hear the uh, the French covers uh, by French artists of American songs. Oh, I'll and bet. The way, <laughs> and the way they handle them. There's one station we listen to a lot because depending on what which American artist is being covered by a French singing group or a French uh, singer, some of them are really bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's and, uh, but they don't care. They don't care. So uh, what they see through the media, television is very, very important. And it's all controlled, or 75, maybe 80% of it, is controlled by the big networks in Paris. Hmm. And they are very liberal, very much to the left, and there's a very strong leftist tendency and, uh, and the message. There are papers like Figaro and Le Monde, they're Parisian, that are more balanced. But generally, the people who control the media or have the biggest voice in the media, whether that results in control or not, are very much to the left. Huh. Oh, and it infuriates people on the right and people in the middle. When are we going to get something honest Have you <laughs> out of Paris? Yeah, isn't something that we hear in the United States all the time? <laughs> right. So we're similar, we're similar that way. The media conspiracy syndrome exists as strongly in France as it does in the United States. Oh, i got to mention food. Food is, it occupies a bastion in French uh, society that around which everything exists. Mm. Now, I'll give you one example. Uh, Sunday lunches with the family are almost endemic. It's, uh, we know of one couple that was engaged. This is a college-educated couple. Okay. They were engaged for, for a number of years, uh, waiting until they solidified themselves in their jobs. And it was very, very important that they traveled every Sunday to her uh, parents' house for Sunday lunch. It's a big thing. And they didn't go to his house because he was from the southern part of France, down in the uh, Riviera. So that was out of the question. There was no way they would get there. But it was very important that they went to dinner in, at her home. So he was promoted, a real big promotion. And he knew that if he turned it down, his future with his corporation was over. So he accepted it. Uh, so he went home with a bottle of champagne. I, I got it, I got it, I got the position. But it was between 150 and 200 miles from her parents' home. Uh -oh. And she said, you can't do that. <laughs> he said, my entire future is uh, tied up in me accepting this and us making the move. They were separated. Oh. 
after several years of being engaged, they went to the same university together. Yeah. And uh, the fact that they would be moving that far away from uh, her parents, that the Sunday lunch uh, was no longer going to be a reality in her life, um, she said, bye-bye. Can't do it. Au revoir. Well, Steve, we need to wrap it up, um, but it's really been a pleasure talking with you again, and I love your stories, and I just want to thank you so much for sharing the news about your latest book. Take All right. care now. Take, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To our listeners, thank you for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Steve Bassett, author of Payback, Tales of Love, Hate, and Revenge. For more information about Steve and his books, visit his website at www.stevebassettworld.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.